CDC quarantine guidelines have normal people scratching their heads again. We'll talk about the agency's COVID U-turn, why they're doing it, and why it's about messaging, not reality. Then you may have noticed that Disaffected spent Christmas in Twitter jail. We'll look at how Twitter codifies a classic narcissistic abuse tactic called the Kafka Trap. And finally, we'll dissect an essay published in The Atlantic that exemplifies how our culture glorifies unbridled female narcissism. We'll talk about what it does to relationships and why almost no one will name the problem out loud. All that and more this week on Disaffected. This is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. Happy New Year! I say that with a little irony because I think it's going to be a really shitty year, but I hope you have a happy one anyway. (laughs) And I hope you had a good holiday. I did. I went home and uh, had a normal family Christmas with the same part of my family. Um, But at the same time... um, I got, this probably helped, actually, but you may have noticed that Disaffected's Twitter account spent Christmas week in jail and got in trouble for saying a bad, bad thing. I'm going to show you what that bad, bad thing was so that you never do it and never got in trouble with Twitter either. So here's an image that greeted me when I logged into Twitter, and it tells me that I need to delete a tweet for violating our rules against hateful conduct. You may not promote violence against, threaten, or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. (sighs) I need two breaths to get to the end of that one. Okay, so keep that in mind. They're accusing me of having acted hatefully and threatened violence or harassed people on the basis of these protected characteristics. Here's what I actually said. Here's my tweet. I was responding to a follower. We were having a discussion about a a trans children's issue. And I responded to someone with my point of view, which you've heard before, which is that gender identity is... I'm setting it up here, and then I'll I'll give you the actual tweet. Gender identity, in my view, the idea that you have a an internal essence that conflicts with your sex, and the behaviors that go along with it, the obsessing, the self doubt, the the demanding that everybody else validate you, that state of mind that they call gender dysphoria, in my view, that is itself the morbidity. It's not that oh goodness, how interesting that people with gender dysphoria also have mental illnesses. I'm saying that that is itself the mental illness. It doesn't have to be a permanent one. doesn't mean you're actually crazy and completely out of touch with reality, but it is the mental illness. So I wrote, right, it's not comorbid. The trans is the morbidity. It is the borderline personality disorder. It is the same illness as the cutting, as in self-harm, cutting yourself on the arms. I realize that's not a popular opinion. I realize that it's considered socially verboten in some circles, but it's not harassment. It's not hateful conduct. You know what? Believe it or not, 
it comes from a place of compassion. I'm one of those people who understood what it meant to have something that we call gender dysphoria today. We didn't call it that. There wasn't a name for it when I was a kid. I've been there. I don't hate these people. I want them to heal. But the way to healing, the first step, you have to accurately identify the problem. And if we continue to pretend that gender identity is a natural thing rather than an artificially created thing that was made up about five to 10 years ago, and we continue to pretend that there is such a thing as, well, some people are truly trans. They really are born in the wrong body, and they really will only feel good about themselves if everyone agrees with their fantasy. No. They need support, but they don't need validation. Delusions don't need validation. So that is what Twitter does. But it gets worse than that. Twitter is set up, it's like I said in the introduction to this episode, Twitter uses a classic Kafka trap to maneuver you into admitting that you broke the rules even when you didn't. And they do this by blackmailing you and withholding access to your account unless you do what they say. So (laughs) when you are presented with one of these, um, either delete the tweet or appeal it, they're very careful to let you know. You can send us an appeal, but if you do, you need to know that you won't be able to browse your Twitter account. You won't be able to use any features of it. We will not tell you how long it will take us to respond to your appeal. So this means it can sit in limbo forever, and it does sit in limbo forever. I have friends who've had appeals lodged in Twitter for um, almost a year now. They just, they won't they won't commit. This is a game of information asymmetry. But then they put the a big red button that says delete tweet. Hey, if you delete this tweet, when you do, you're admitting that you broke the rules. But guess what? We'll start your countdown if you delete it. You want to start your countdown, don't you? You don't want to wait longer, do you? It's abuse. It's Kafka-esque abuse. Information asymmetry. And if you're curious about what prompted that tweet, what conversation I was participating in, take a look at this next image. I'll describe it for those of you who are listening on audio. It is a middle-aged woman standing next to her 13-year-old daughter in a room. Her, Her daughter is standing shirtless, having just come out of surgery for a radical mastectomy. There's a huge Frankenstein scar all the way across her chest from left to right. There appear to be no nipples. It appears they removed her nipples as well as her breasts. She's got her shirt off. They're standing in front of a Christmas tree. And even though they have masks on, you can tell by their eyes that everybody is beaming and smiling. And they're posing with the surgeon who gave her the <laughs> top surgery. <laughs> Doesn't that sound nicer than radical mastectomy? It's cute. Just top surgery. <laughs> That's what we were talking about. This is completely normal. This is just fine to put on social media. Mommy's standing there 
beaming next to her 13-year-old girl who's had her breasts lopped off by somebody I think is a psychopath. Let's take a look at the next one. Let's take a look at, what is her name? Dr. and I, I wish I knew how to pronounce this, Sidibe, perhaps, Gallagher. Here she is standing with this 13-year-old girl, and Dr. Gallagher, for some reason, has a fluffy kitty in her hands. And the girl standing next to her, again shirtless with her Frankenstein scar, holding a great big book in front of her that says in all capital letters, affirmed. She just got affirmed, didn't she? She got her tits cut off and got affirmed as her genuine and true self, a boy, who no one is ever, ever going to take as a boy because she looks exactly like the female she is, right down to the very obvious tiny waist and burgeoning, buxom, childbearing hips. I I, I know that's not the point. I know it isn't the point, but it is the point, isn't it? Nobody in real life is going to treat this poor girl the way she thinks she's going to be treated. She's not a boy. No one's ever going to believe she's a man. Maybe she can take some pictures with carefully, um, carefully chosen angles. The minute she walks in a room, she's either going to have a high woman's voice or she's going to have testosterone frog voice, which is probably what she'll be saddled with for the rest of her life. This is just normal. You know what else Dr. Gallagher likes to do? She likes to make little funnies about her job online. Let's take a look at a couple of those funnies. Two pictures of herself on social media with text added. The first one says, just realized I only get to yeet four teats next week. What does yeet mean? It's youth speak. It means delete, get rid of. It's cutesy. Yeet the teats. Get it? Ha ha ha. It's just like a video game. Next one. There's Dr. Gallagher in her scrubs with a mask on, taking a selfie with the text, my commute every morning to yeet the teats. Does this look normal? Why, is, why does this woman have a medical license? Why is this even legal? Why is she not banned on social media? Why is her slicing tits off not enough to get her banned on social media, but me saying that wanting your tits sliced off is a sign of mental illness is hateful and harassing conduct against protected minorities? Why is that? Because we live in an insane world run by narcissists. We'll have a little more trans stuff after this, but we have got to get into COVID now because this week, this past week has been really, (laughs) really something. There seems to be some kind of COVID U-turn going on right now. I am not as hopeful about this as many people that I know on social media. Uh, A lot of people think the narrative, they're saying the narrative is falling apart. Yay, yay, yay. Maybe it is. I'm not ready to go there yet. May have hit a little snag. But I also am not going to be satisfied that we're really turning the corner in 
addressing this disturbing authoritarian dynamic that U.S. citizens are in with their government now until we start destroying the narrative. Instead of waiting for the narrative to peter out, instead of waiting for the CDC to change their mind, we need to start taking control and putting them in their place, refusing to comply. When I see evidence of that, then I will say, I think we're making progress. But as long as people keep saying, oh, they're getting tired of it and they're going to stop, we've made no progress because we're still asking permission from the Lord and Lady of the Manor and the White House or the CDC, and that's not going to do. <clears throat> but how are they changing their tune? Here's an example. Uh, story from NBC News, the synopsis is, CDC cuts the recommended isolation period for people with COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on Monday shortened the recommended isolation time for people infected with COVID-19 from 10 days to five if they are asymptomatic. CDC says the updated guidance is in keeping with growing evidence that people with the coronavirus are most infectious in the two days before and the three days after symptoms develop. The announcement comes as the nation is contending with a new coronavirus wave driven by the highly transmissible Omicron variant. Yeah. Imagine that. What does that sound like? Well, to me, that sounds like what a bunch of people with common sense have been saying for almost two years. Asymptomatic transmission. Show me the evidence. What other transmissible coronavirus or respiratory violence is so dangerous that we quarantine asymptomatic people. Do you know what we call asymptomatic people? You know what we did call them before the last two years? Healthy people. Yeah, look at the difference language makes. But when you're asymptomatic, you can never be healthy. You're just waiting to be sick. You're proto-sick. You're asymptomatic. You're never just in a state of health. So, <laughs> they wheeled out CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky uh, to introduce these new guidelines. Do we bother putting up? Let's just go right into, let's go right into the CNN video. Uh, where Dr. Walensky talks to a, a CNN correspondent. Take a listen to this. Dr. Walensky, thank you for being here with us this morning. And I want to start with the change in the CDC guidance that cuts the isolation period in half if you're asymptomatic. So how did the CDC settle on five days for everyone? Good morning, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. So we looked at several areas of science here. First, the science of how much transmission happens in the period of time um, after you're infected. We know that the most amount of transmission occurs in those one to two days before you develop symptoms, those two to three days after you develop symptoms. And if you map that out, those five days account for somewhere between 85 to 90 percent of all transmission that occurs. So we really wanted to make sure that during those first five days, you were spent in isolation 
that's when most of it occurs. And then there is, of course, this tail end, um, a period of time in those last five days, which are which where we're asking you to mask. But the other things that we were looking at is the epidemiology here. We are seeing asking and expecting even more mask. cases of this Omicron asking. variant. Many of those cases are mildly symptomatic, if not asymptomatic, and especially among those who are vaccinated and unvaccinated. And then finally, the behavioral science. What will people actually do when people need to get back to work? What is it that they will actually do? And if we can get them to isolate, we do want to make sure that they're isolating in those first five days when they're maximally infectious. Well, she got the whole script out, didn't she? Good going, Dr. Walensky. Did you catch that? Among the vaccinated and unvaccinated, she said it really quickly. So there's no difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in transmission rates. Is that what she's admitting? It was real fast how she slipped that in there. So the question was, why are you changing the guidance from 10 days to five? She didn't answer the question. But she talked about, well, the science and the science. So you know what? There was no the science that ever told you that asymptomatic, that is healthy people, healthy people, Rochelle, needed to be isolated for 10 days. So how come now you're doing the science today? What's the explanation? I didn't hear one. And where's the evidence of this asymptomatic transmission? I know they're backing down. I heard her say, you know, transmission is most... um, most common in the two days prior to symptoms and then the two to three days after they, I don't believe her. I don't think she knows that. I don't think any of them know that because I don't believe anything they report. I don't believe they have data that says that there's high transmission rates in the two days before you yourself start expressing symptoms. There is, show it to me, publish it. (laughs) She also said this had to do with taking into account what people will actually do. And that's what this is all about. They are finally experiencing some pushback from the public, the CDC and the White House. And I think they feel they have to adjust. This is a good thing. It's a good thing and it's a hopeful sign. We need to do more of this. And if we had pushed back earlier, if we had remembered from the beginning that the CDC does not have legal and moral authority over our lives as private citizens, they don't. We wouldn't be here now, but we have allowed them to get away with it because we've said yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am to everything the CDC puts out. People have voluntarily put chains around themselves and treated the CDC as their master. Stop doing that because some people have stopped doing it and it's having an effect. This I am actually hopeful about. They're doing this because they're getting pressure. Pressure them more. got a second clip from this video I'd like to roll for you. Listen to the question evasion. So if that's the case, then why when a few days ago when the CDC changed its guidance uh, for healthcare workers when it comes to isolating, they said if you were asymptomatic, you could go back to work after seven days with a negative test. So why would healthcare workers just a few days ago need a negative test, but now everyone doesn't? 
Yeah, really important question. So I, I want to be very clear that our infection control um, recommendations in the healthcare workplace are always more stringent for healthcare workers than they are for the general population. Of course, these healthcare workers are treating immunocompromised patients, they're treating patients um, who have uh, underlying medical conditions who are at very high risk of COVID and may very well be severely ill. So in all of our areas of infection control, we are always much more conservative with our healthcare workers than we are with the general population. Did the shortage of rapid tests that we're seeing play a role in this decision? Okay, did you catch that? Let me repeat it for you. The reporter's question was, why were healthcare workers being told they had to do X, Y, and Z until yesterday, but today, uh, actually it says, why did healthcare workers need a negative test at the end of isolation? But now today, no one, including healthcare workers, no one needs that. Did you notice that Rochelle Walensky did not answer the question? She said, our rules for healthcare workers are always more stringent. That's a non sequitur. That's not the answer to the question. Rochelle, the, the question again was, how come yesterday healthcare workers had to show a negative COVID test at the end of isolation, but today they don't. And you said, our measures for healthcare workers have always been more stringent. She dodged the question. We see this a lot, but nobody calls them on it. And the, the next part, the reporter didn't call her on it. Did you notice that? She just nodded her head and then went on to the next thing. Madam CNN reporter, wh why didn't you say, Right, but you didn't answer my question. Let me please repeat it for you. Why do we let them get away with this? I, I wish I knew. I, I honestly wish I knew how many viewers actually pick up on these things. Because if you don't pick up on it, what exactly are you getting out of watching stuff like this? What message are you taking? It's got to be something fictional. Hmm. And now Joe Biden... <laughs> Brandon. Brandon wants to send us all rapid COVID tests by mail. You know why? So they can have more cases. Because the more cases they have, they can't talk about outsized deaths anymore. They got to talk about cases. Have you ever worried about how many cold cases there are? How many cases of cold? Is there a ticker on your screen for every flu case every single day? Yes? No? They want to... <laughs> the administration wants to spend how many billions of dollars on rapid tests to send to the worried well by mail to every American's doorstep. Waste all that money and a bunch of you are going to lap it right up. I've already seen it. So that you can report your positive test, which, of course, is probably not positive because they're sending you PCR tests, aren't they? How many cycles are they using? 35, 40, 50? <laughs> and they're going to use this to justify continuing government rules. And more stringent measures, more usurpations of your civil rights. Don't participate in this.
take that fucking box and mark it return to sender and set it out for the postman. But you know, no COVID segment would be complete without our garden gnome in chief. Let's roll him. But the other important thing is that if you look at the children who are hospitalized, many of them are hospitalized with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. And what we mean by that, if a child goes in the hospital, they automatically get tested for COVID and they get counted as a COVID hospitalized individual. When in fact, they may go in for a broken leg or appendicitis or something like that. So it's overcounting the number of children who are quote hospitalized with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. You don't say. Some of us have been saying this since March of 2020 when we noticed that the CDC's diagnosis guidelines that they sent to physicians and healthcare centers said any death within 28 days of a positive COVID test is a COVID death. We pointed this out two years ago. And for our trouble, some of us got banned on social media. Our friends and neighbors told us we were anti-science Luddites. You, people like you, Fauci, mocked us, called us anti-science, and now you're just going to come along and admit what you knew all along and act like it never happened? Oh, my goodness. Listeners, viewers. (laughs) I know I'm talking to you. You're not actually there. You can't talk to me, but I'm begging you. (laughs) Please tell me you notice these things. I can't stand this. They're getting away with it, too. They're going to get away with a lot of this, unfortunately, and I'm going to have to accommodate myself emotionally to this reality as much as I don't like it. A lot of these people are going to get away with it. They're going to blatantly lie. They're going to pretend they didn't know this stuff. They're going to pretend that the very statements they're making were not the statements that got you socially punished or got you thrown off social media or got you labeled troublesome and radicalized. They're just going to pretend and they're going to get away with it. They're going to get away with it. And you know what? Let me be... um, Let me get a little personal here. You know another thing I can't stand about Anthony Fauci? How theatrical he is. He turns his accent up and down depending on what mood he's in. I haven't been able to establish a pattern yet. But today, he's talking like he was raised in Brooklyn and has never left the borough because... And other days... He sounds like somebody who lived in New York City until he was about 20 and retains a little bit of the accent. It, I, it's personal. It's aesthetic. It doesn't really mean anything, but it drives me crazy. <laughs> and a little more on Joe Biden. This is an, I'm going to uh, pull out a few quotes from an article from uh, the newspaper The Hill for you. Um, Joe Biden, who appears to say whatever occurs to him at any given moment, because I don't think he remembers what he did in the morning. That's not snark. I mean it. The man has dementia. We can all see it. It's sad, but it's actually the sad part is this big. The egregious violation against what citizens should expect is about this big. Okay. Primary problem isn't it's sad for daddy Biden. 
primary problem is this is being foisted on us as citizens. We're supposed to respect this man. We're supposed to pretend he's in charge. So, from the Hill. The debate over requiring COVID-19 vaccines for domestic travel is back in the spotlight this week, despite pushback from the business community and the potential for strong backlash if the Biden administration opposes a mandate. Domestic travel. Turning that ratchet one click tighter. Want to get on an airplane? Papers, please. You've axed? Oh, yeah, really? You got two shots? What about the booster? What about the booster? You're not fully vaxxed. Come back with your papers. Quote, President Biden's chief medical advisor, Anthony Fauci, said on Wednesday that the administration is discussing a mandate, but pointed to the safety of the mask requirement in place for all U.S. transportation networks. I don't know what that means. Excuse me. Pointed to the safety of the mask requirement. If that means look how safe you are because we have masks on, that's also bullshit. Masks don't stop coronavirus. They're still doing that. They're still doing this. This is a direct quote from Fauci. When you're dealing with domestic flights, you want to keep people safe on domestic flights. And as I said right now, we feel that the masking requirement and the degree of filtration on a plane is sufficient to keep people safe. Let me stop that there. It's not filtration. It's circulation of outside air. I actually happen to know how airplane ventilation systems work. The pressurized air comes in from bleed air from the initial stage of the jet engines before it goes through the exhaust in the combustion chamber. It's not filtering air. The air is constantly being circulated from the atmosphere outside. Oh, I know. Minor point. It's not a minor point. They're not installing HEPA filters in the airplanes, for Christ's sake. They can just get fresh air in. (laughs) It's like opening a window, but not because it's an airplane. (sighs) If there's a need to do more beyond this masking, Fauci said, mainly having a vaccine issue, we will seriously consider that as new information arises. Hmm. But when approached, this is what President Biden said. Biden said he would impose a mandate if his medical team recommended one on Tuesday, talking to reporters while on a beach, while on a walk on a beach in Delaware. Well, if my medical people say so, I'll do it. Even though I don't have the authority, even though it's unconstitutional, I know I'll get away with it, so I'll do it. You know, I had one bright spot amid all this masketarian nonsense this week. I was at the grocery store the other night, actually shopping for my New Year's Eve. This is my New Year's Eve. It's like, yeah, I don't have to do anything. I'm going to stay in. So I got myself um, a big pile of crab legs and some stuffed salmon. And I just ate my face off in front of the television. It was glorious. But I was in line. I was at the grocery store. And I've been watching now Every single person in this grocery store was masked except for me and one other woman in line. Every single one. This is how it is in Vermont now. I've told you this on other episodes. I've been watching masking go up and up and up again. Back in the summer, most people had stopped doing it. 
Now they're doing it again. Now it's almost universal. I've been to the grocery store three times in the past week. I have been the only person except for this one other lady. Every single person is doing it. Even in South Burlington, which does not have a mask mandate, even in Colchester, which does not have a citywide mask mandate, people are just doing it. So I'm in line with my crab legs and all this stuff. And there's a woman standing in front of me. She's about my age. Uh, I didn't get her name, but it was definitely Rhonda. And she was talking with the uh, with the checking clerk about everybody losing their minds and not trusting that vaccines are effective and being being afraid of everything. And she said something like, people just need to go back to living their lives. And I said, yeah, and without wearing masks. And she turns to me and she says, I like you. We talked a little bit. I said, I like you, too. And I said, people are acting like this is the black death. And she she starts laughing and she says, I like you even more. You actually think. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not a really hard thought. I'm not special for thinking. This is really basic stuff. So Rhonda, I got to tell, I know. She's going to be Rhonda in my head for the rest of my life, even if I never run into her again. If I do, I'm going to ask her her actual name. Because she was one of those women. She was my age, and and she would have been standing behind the dumpsters in high school smoking Marlboro Light 100s with me and talking about what a perv Principal Smith was. That's the kind of cool chick Rhonda was. And you know what she does? She's a 20-year firefighter and and veteran uh, paramedic. This is a woman who sees death and disease every single day of her life, and she's going about her business like a normal person. Take a page out of Rhonda's book. All right. Before we take a break, I want to show you a couple of the latest histrionic displays from America's best public school teachers. We've got a real epidemic going on. I don't know how many it is in real life, and I know that I see this on social media and that people are self-selecting on social media, so it probably looks more widespread in TikTok than it is in real life. I I get that. I accept that. I'll I'll give you that. But it it doesn't make me feel much better. Because what it means is we live in a society that is permissive enough that these people feel comfortable making these TikTok videos, which end up getting picked up by accounts like Libs of TikTok on Twitter. Bless you, Libs of TikTok, uh, for showing, throwing a light on all of this. They feel comfortable enough to do it, and they feel comfortable enough because they're right. They, they know that we are, in fact, permissive enough to do this. They can get away with this. So... This is, this is a video from, I believe it's a second grade teacher, and um, I'll let you tell, I'll let them tell their story. Hi, here's some things my students have said slash done since I came out and changed my teacher name. You have a new name? Well, yes, it's a name that makes me a lot happier, and that's why I changed it. I like your new name. I do too, but it's nice to know I have your approval. Mix? You mean like mixing you up like cookie dough? If that's gonna help you remember it, yeah, cookie dough works. Excuse me, Miss K, I need... It's Mix K! I did not ask them to do that. You guys are in fifth grade, so I feel like I can tell you this a little bit more. Um, My new name is going to be Mix K, and I go by they and she pronouns. Mr. is for boys and Mrs. is for girls. Well, I go by Mix Love Bug. What does that make me? Uh, 
Yep, my work here is done. Hi, Mix K. Um, can I talk to you when you're free? Yeah, of course, Sunshine. What's up? Um, I just wanted to tell you something. Yeah, of course, sweetheart. You can tell me anything. What is it? I, um... Sunshine, thank you so much for trusting me with this. Have you told anyone else? No, no one else. Well, I'm honored that you trust me with this, especially the first one to be trusted with this. This is your business. No one else has to know. I will not tell anyone, obviously, but it's not always easy. But just know that there is support out there. There are other people, and you will always have a support and system in me, okay? Okay. Fast forward a few weeks. Mix K, um, me and this person need to talk to you real quick, okay? Yeah, of course. I'm free right now. So, you can tell them. Go ahead. Um, I think I'm... Oh my gosh, thank you so much for telling me. Yeah, I, I can't tell my parents. That is your business, no one else's. You have the right to decide who gets to know when, okay? Just know you will always have a safe space with me. It's our little secret. I told you, I told you. Yeah, you're right. Just between us, you don't have to tell mommy or daddy, and also bring all your other little friends. Hi, I'm Mix K. Woo, 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 woo. I speak in a little girl voice, and it's really super cute. Disgusting. This isn't a teacher, this is a mess. This is a mess. This woman looks like she's barely out of her teens herself, and she's got way, way too many adult problems to be in the classroom. I pulled out a few pieces ahead of time to make, make sure I could draw your attention to them. Why is she coming out to her students? Why is she speaking to her second grade students about her gender? Like they all can't see her tits. <laughs> I'm sorry. It reminds me of an old French and Saunders parody. They used to do movie parodies, so they parodied. Um, the new Star Wars movie, I don't remember what the hell that thing was called. It came out in the early 2000s. And it had Don French, big old Don French, as Panty Padme <laughs> and, and a couple of other characters. And they Jennifer Saunders, I'm sorry, Star Wars fans, I don't know the names of these characters, but I don't know. He was some Jedi, I think Liam Neeson played him or some dude like that. And it's, but it's Jennifer Saunders in Mandrag. <laughs> and she's upset and because everybody around her the joke is that that it's self-conscious and everybody knows they're in a movie and they keep indicating that they know they're in a movie when they're supposed to be playing their lines and jennifer saunders is like stop it stop it i'm a man and the other character says so how come you got such big tits <laughs> okay so <laughs> Notice with this woman the infantilized affect, the childlike, giddy, six-year-old girl affect. That's disturbing in and of itself. Why is she presenting as a child to us? 
And notice also the sarcasm and the nastiness in some of her responses to her students. You may have to go back and look at it again to catch it. But she says, when one of her students reacts to her new name, she's like, I'm glad you like it. I don't need your approval or something like that. I don't know. Maybe. No, no. Actually, I don't think I'm reading too much into it. I think I'm detecting hostility that she's passing off as a joke because I think she sees these children as sources of narcissistic supply, not as her charges to which she has responsibility, but little ego boosters that belong to her. I'm Mix K, DJ Mix K. And I go by they and she pronouns. So it's not bad enough that you have to gaslight the fucking kids by telling them that you're not a woman. It's not bad enough to ask them to use fake pronouns that don't correspond to your sex. You got to mix them up. So it can't be she, her, which would be appropriate. It has to be she, they. Seven-year-olds are going to remember that. And this is a reasonable thing to be talking about with seven-year-olds in the classroom. Right, Mix K? But the worst part, the worst part is how she encourages these children to share secrets with her. This is a child safeguarding red flag to beat them all. You do not tell children that you will keep secrets from their parents and the people who love them. That is a red flag. It's a warning sign of an abuser, a pied piper. Sunshine, thank you so much for trusting me with that. It's not cute. It's not sweet. It's not kind. It's predatory. And I know some of you see it. But a lot of people aren't going to see it because of how she looks and how she sounds. She presents as cute, innocent, childlike. She's not. No, she is in some ways. Yes, this is severely arrested emotional development. She does have the emotional affect of a child. She has no sense of how to be an appropriate adult and a teacher. A woman like this never would have gotten into a teaching position even 15 years ago. She wouldn't even have gotten an interview. Secrets. We've got one more before we go to the break. This one is just a short clip, and I'm going to have to read to you uh, the words on the screen because she doesn't talk. It basically looks like a 15 or 20 second advertisement for an overly sexualized music video. And the one we're going to look at is a preschool teacher. Let's just... Um, We'll roll it out. Those of you looking at video can see it, and afterwards I'll describe it to those of you who are listening on audio. Okay. Short, but what you couldn't see there is a young woman, she looks to be somewhere between 20 and 25. Um, attractive, fully made up, wing eyeliner, big lipstick. And she's done this in slow motion and she's gyrating to this song. She's got her midriff bared and she's bringing her face closer 
and closer and closer to the camera with her lips wet and parted and a come fuck me look in her eyes. Yeah? Come fuck me. She looks like a whore doing whore things in a video about how she's a openly non-binary trans preschool teacher. And this video, she writes, is to the parents who refuse to educate their children on queerness. I talk to my students about pronouns, transness, gender expression, and sexuality. Preschoolers. Come back after the break. For more conversation on the dark and disordered psychology that shapes today's cultural and political left, subscribe to our weekly audio podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and virtually anywhere else you get your podcasts. Let's learn to recognize these dynamics and call them what they are. Subscribe to Disaffected to learn how to break the spell. We now have a bonus for our supporters. You can help the Disaffected podcast grow and receive invitations for our off-air Zoom hangouts by becoming a supporting member on Patreon or Subscribestar. Patreon users, go to patreon.com slash disaffected. Subscribestar users, you can find us at subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Check out our webpage at disaffected.fm for the complete list of ways you can help support us. And thank you. When I was a child, one of the most difficult things about living with my mother were the mercurial and ever-changing expectations and emotions that came out of her. I have told you about many episodes from my childhood. Beatings, psychological torture sessions, quasi-incestuous behavior from my mother. It's easy. It's easier to tell you those stories and and to have confidence that you will understand them as stories of abuse than it is to talk about the complexity of a mother who says that she loves you one day and says that she hates you the next. I've wrestled with how to get this point across and I don't know if I can do it well right now. There were times that my mother did things that you would look at from the outside and you'd say, these are the sweet and normal things that any mother would do for her child. She made me birthday cakes. She tried to make Christmas nice. There were times that she sat up and read stories to me or with me when I got older. And... I'm hesitating right now. Because there is such a bias, there is such a social bias toward 
seeing mothers as solely loving, solely saintly, solely motivated by the best interests of their child, that I worry that if I admit any of the nice things my mother did for me, that you will forget about the abuse or that you will say, see, she did her best. You're being too hard on her. And I know some of you wouldn't do that, but I know some people will because they do, and they do it every day. I could walk into the living room at night, and if my mother were in a good mood, I might get a story. I might get some special attention. I might, to get, I might get to stay up late and watch a show past 9 p.m. with her. But it would often turn into an opportunity for my mother to start self-aggrandizing. She could go off on these long disquisitions and say things like, you know, the only thing I ever wanted to be in the world was a mother. I knew from the time I was an adolescent girl that I wanted to have babies and I wanted to take care of them and I wanted to love them. The most important thing in the world to me was being a mother. I'm so glad I had you kids. And the next day, when my mother was not in a good mood, she would stomp around the house swearing and smoking cigarettes one after another, railing about the world who didn't recognize how hard single mothers had it. And if I were foolish enough to say anything during one of these tirades, I might get something like, I could have been somebody if I didn't have to stay home and raise you goddamned kids. Yeah. I don't know this for sure, but I strongly suspect my childhood might have been easier if my mother had never acted loving toward me. Because there's something especially confusing and deranging to a child trying to figure out who this woman is. Does she love me? Does she love me not? Why did she love me last night? And why does she hate me today? Why am I feeling like she's saying she wish I hadn't been born? Because that's what she was saying. Female narcissism. I'm going to be talking about it a lot more on this show. Because it's a serious societal problem, and it is almost unrecognized. Outside of the set of people that I now associate myself with. Disaffected leftists. Conservatives. People who have any sympathy at all 
for even the most mild traditional gender roles, not even anything oppressive. (laughs) They recognize this. But the mainstream? No. Female narcissism is excused? No. No, it isn't just excused. It's applauded. It gets slay queen. You go girl. Yeah, wine mom. The kinds of behaviors that women get away with in public, if men did them, They would be the subject of a sexual harassment investigation scandal probing into their lives, looking for all of the skeletons in their closet, and they would be, as my friend Helen says, Twitter's main character of the day, the punching bag who gets a thousand accusations of being a misogynist, a rapist, a wife beater, an unreconstructed male chauvinist troglodyte. Women? It's all good. Part of me hates to say this, so I'll try to I'll try to preface it. It probably won't work. I was very disturbed to see somebody who I admire named Barry Weiss, former Wall Street Journal and New York Times editor. Praise a story in the Atlantic this week. My guess is that Barry has a personal relationship with the person who wrote this article that may make it difficult for her to see the product of of, to see this friend's article in the way that I think it really should be seen. I think the personal friendship may may make that difficult for her. I'm not trying to talk Barry Weiss down. I like Barry Weiss. I listen to her podcast. I read her Substack. I think she's courageous. But I think she's mistaken here. Let's put up an image of her tweet introducing the story in the Atlantic. And Barry said, A beautiful and moving essay by my friend Honor Jones, who is also the most talented editor I've ever worked with. And the story is titled, How I Demolished My Life, A Home Improvement Story. And here's a picture of the author, Honor Jones. This is a very long essay. I didn't count the pages, but my guess would be that it would be about a 10-page essay in a magazine, single-spaced. Um, I've pulled quite a lot, but believe me, I've pulled less than 20% of this article that I'm going to share with you. This is a story about how she came to realize that she needed to divorce her husband and rearrange her life. And it's written in what some people would call a lyrical style, where she describes the kind of kitchen she wants, obsessing over the kinds of countertops in her Pennsylvania farmhouse, and how she wasn't getting satisfaction out of that and realized that something else might be wrong. Some people call it lyrical. It read to me as a little self-indulgent. Taste is subjective. Quote, My husband talked to the architect. My husband talked to the builder. And I kept paring the plans down, making them cheaper, making them simpler, 
I nixed the island and found a stainless steel work table at a restaurant supply store online for $299. I started fantasizing about replacing the counters with two-by-fours on sawhorses and hanging the pots from nails on the wall. Slowly, I realized I didn't want this kitchen. Slowly, I realized I didn't want this life. I didn't want to renovate. Renovate. I wanted to get divorced. Okay. Quote, For a while I had thought, I was quite certain, that I loved our home. But the upkeep, oh my God, the upkeep. I hired a woman named Luba to clean once a week, and I loved talking with her. She was full of sensible advice, like how I should really stop washing the, cre- the cleaning rags along with the children's clothes, because the chemicals could irritate their skin. She was likewise full of conspiracy theories and evangelical religion. She was worried about microchips in COVID-19 vaccines. Humanity had a few more years, she thought, probably seven, then apocalypse. Even with Luba's help, the house was chaos. I could never keep the children in their mess corralled. Toys and books were always underfoot. The crumbs, they were everywhere. I knew I was lucky to have all these crumbs in the house to keep them in, to have Luba to help. Still, if our kitchen became a murder scene, a forensic investigator could have told the story of my days with those crumbs. 3% Play-Doh, 10% toast, 87% Honey Nut Cheerios dust. This was who I was. Okay. So far, so fine. But you see what we're building up toward. The unrealized, unfulfilled woman. Stuck at home with the children, thinking about house renovation when she could have been somebody. So, a little bit more, then we'll get to the meat of this. I didn't have a secret life, but I had a secret dream life, which might have been worse. I loved my husband, it's not that I didn't, but I felt that he was standing between me and the world, between me and myself. Everything I experienced, relationships, reality, my understanding of my own identity and desires, were filtered through him before I could access them. The worst part was that it wasn't remotely his fault. This is probably exactly what I asked him to do when we were 21 and first in love, even if I never said it out loud. To shelter me from the elements, to be caring and broad-shouldered. But now it was like I was always on my tiptoes trying to see around him. I couldn't see, but I could imagine. I started imagining other lives, other homes. I wanted to be thinking about art and sex and politics and the patriarchy. How much of my life, I mean the architecture of my life, but also its essence, my soul, my mind, had I built around my husband? Who could I be if I wasn't his wife? Maybe I would microdose. Maybe I would have sex with women. Maybe I would write a book. Well, sounds like the thoughts that accompany a midlife crisis. And there isn't anything 
I don't think there's anything particularly weird about these thoughts or anything unusual. I, I'm betting a lot of us have them. You know, obviously, I'm not a woman approaching middle age, but I could see myself asking those questions myself. Sure. But it's at this point in the story where the other characters come in. She and her husband left their, their, their house in Pennsylvania and moved back to New York, split the household goods between them, and got themselves separate apartments. And now, enter Honor's children. I hadn't needed to renovate a kitchen. I'd spent seven years renovating myself. My children, the three pregnancies, a literal gut renovation, a major addition and then a subtraction, and then the strange misshapen aftermath. The giant boobs of breastfeeding that seemed borrowed from another woman's body entirely and were eventually returned to the mothers of the universe. And then the whole thing again and again. And now finally my own winnowed older body, which still feels foreign to me. I had been a house for my family and now I was empty. wonder what her children will think when they read this. I wonder if she thought about that. Because it's starting to sound less to me like normal, middle-aged reassessment of life and more like somebody who has unstable identity issues. Let's get to the part where she talks about how we moved the kids. We moved the kids into a three-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. Their father and I split our time between the kids' place and a one-bedroom garden apartment that friends of ours owned nearby. Two nights on, two nights off. This setup is called nesting, a cute word for a depressing arrangement. But it was cheaper than having two bigger apartments, and we hoped that it would make the transition easier on the kids. She doesn't care about what's easy on her kids. Because if she cared, she wouldn't have broken up her marriage. Because she didn't feel fulfilled. Or because she felt her body had been used and winnowed by the children she chose to bring into this world. Honor Jones cares about herself, and she cares about having plausible mommy deniability. Like my mother. Like my mother who loved her children one day and said that having children was the greatest blessing that could ever happen to a woman and certainly the greatest blessing that ever happened to her. And then the next day calling them rugrats, snot noses, ball and chain, fantasizing out loud about what her life would have been like if she didn't have children, what she'd do if we hadn't tied her down. Imagine how this feels to a child. I don't know how old Honor's children are. But they're going to be old enough to read pretty soon, and they're going to read this. We live in the internet age. One of their friends is going to bring this article to them. How will they feel? Did she think about that? Maybe. 
And if she did, she decided she didn't care because she got an essay published in The Atlantic, didn't she? And do you think these children aren't picking up on this at home? Do you think they need to read this in The Atlantic? They don't. They know. When you have a mother like this, how can a child ever trust her when she says, I love you? Quote, there were days when the magnitude of what I'd done bore down on me. I kept wondering if I'd feel regret or remorse. It's hard to admit this. It makes me cold, as cold a woman as my ex-husband sometimes suspects I am. But I didn't. I felt raw, and I liked it. There was nothing between me and the world. It was as if I, would, it was as if I had been wearing sunglasses and then taken them off, and suddenly everything looked different. Not better or worse, just clearer, harsher, cold wind on my face. I had caused so much upheaval, so much suffering, and for what? He asked me that at first, again and again. For what? So I could put my face in the wind. So I could see the sun's glare. I didn't say that out loud. Well, you have now, Honor. You have now. Now your husband, your ex-husband knows, now your children know that you didn't feel any remorse. This is female narcissism. It's the kind that gets a free pass in today's culture. Yeah, I know you all watching me fiddling with my earpiece again. It's those bum ears Kemen was telling me about. So, if a man wrote an essay like this, what do you think the reaction would be? I felt really tied down. These children, they defined me. But what if I'd had other women? What if there were women more exciting than my wife? What if I had a better apartment? You know, I caused a lot of upheaval and suffering by leaving my children and splitting up with my wife. And for what? But you know what? I liked it. You know exactly how a man would be received who wrote an article like this. It would be wall-to-wall on social media and probably some of the mainstream media, and it would be shown as an example of toxic masculinity. It would be called selfish. It would be called immature. It would be called immoral. And all of those things would be correct. It would be all of those things. Self-indulgent, narcissistic, egotistical, vanity with a shocking lack of conscience about the effect on the children that you brought into the world. And it's all of those things when Honor Jones writes it too. But she won't get the pushback a man would get because mothers are pure. And besides, he probably made her feel that way, didn't he? Mommy's put up with a lot. Cut her some slack. But the man? Fuck him. Cut his balls off. He's a deadbeat. I have a real problem 
with people like Barry Weiss describing this as beautiful and moving. Look harder. Use your theory of mind. Think about the children. You know, I sometimes think, well, maybe it's people who don't have children who can't quite understand it, but you know what? I don't have children either, and I don't have a really hard time with this. Why do other people? Good question. I don't know the answer. The comments that I saw on this were overwhelmingly negative, which is a positive thing. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but it's not good enough. You know, there were some there were some responses that were like, you go, girl, you know, you tell them, you know, don't live for a man, blah, blah, blah. Of course, all of them neglected to think about the children, which is typical with a female self-realization story today as if the woman didn't consciously choose to have the children, like they were some, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring it back to my mother again. Yeah. Remember how I told you about how my mother would get in my face and scream at me and hit me? And while she was doing it, she'd say, why are you doing this to me? That's the way many women react to other women behaving badly, selfishly, in an anti-family way. They act like somebody did those children to her. Somebody did that husband to her. Somebody did that stay-at-home mom to her. There are a few that that happens to, yeah, obviously. But it ain't the majority of them. If, <laughs> if your life feels like a trap... And I can understand it feeling like a trap. I can even understand my mother's feeling that she was trapped. I can put myself in her shoes. She made a lot of very bad decisions. She is responsible for the course of her life, but she got a really terrible start in life. She started with abuse. She abused me, but she came from that abuse too. But she didn't get accidentally knocked up, my mother. She wanted a baby. She got pregnant deliberately with me, knowing my father didn't want children. And yeah, he's responsible too. He should have worn a condom. Nobody did children to my mother. Nobody did children to Honor Jones. If this is a trap, it is a trap they chose. If you decide to have children, if you decide to marry someone, you are making a life commitment with the exception of abuse. If your spouse is abusive, divorce is the better option. It's going to hurt the children, but it is going to hurt them less than staying in an abusive household. But otherwise, you made your bed and you goddamn well better lie in it. The children are not okay. The latchkey children of my generation of divorced parents were not okay. I didn't turn out okay. I get a lot of I get a lot of responses. I get a lot of messages um, from those of you listening and watching the show. And you say kind things. You say flattering things. You say it's amazing that you turned out to be as stable as you are. 
that you can see these things, that you've made something out of your life given where you came from. And I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. I don't need to hear it. It's I appreciate the kindness. I don't need the validation, but I recognize I recognize the kind sentiment behind it, but it isn't true. I'm not okay. This is second best. I am permanently damaged. I will be for the rest of my life. I will never be the person I could have been if I were not beaten and exploited and psychologically tormented and institutionalized by the people who said they loved me. That broke me. It gave me major depression. For a time, it gave me something that either was or was very close to borderline personality disorder. It gave me complicated post-traumatic stress disorder. It gave me fully diagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder and panic disorder. And it gave me chronic alcoholism. I am 47 years old and I am saner than I have ever been in my life. But God knows who I would have been at 47 if I'd gotten a decent start in life. The kids are not okay. It's not okay to do this. Yes, you do need to stay married even if it's boring to you. You don't count as much as the children that you brought into the world and that you made a moral commitment by that choice to protect and nurture. One final quote from Honor Jones. By breaking up our family, I'd taken something from my kids that they were never going to get back. Naturally, I thought about this a lot. There was nothing I could give them to make up for it, except maybe a way of being in the world, of being open to it, of being in it. Excuse me. You loathsome bitch. We're going to take a break. We'll come back after it. For more conversation on the dark and disordered psychology that shapes today's cultural and political left, subscribe to our weekly audio podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and virtually anywhere else you get your podcasts. Let's learn to recognize these dynamics and call them what they are. Subscribe to Disaffected to learn how to break the spell. Welcome back. Let's have a little fun to close the show. So you remember on the last episode, I drew a connection between the Disney villainess aesthetic, the arched eyebrows, the smirk, the evil, hungry look that you see in these characters, and the manner, the look, and the affect of so many so-called trans women. <laughs> Well, got another example for you. Let's listen to Jeffrey Marsh. Let me tell you something about LGBTQ rights, about trans rights. This is only going in one direction. 
you will respect us. You can be upset. You can be angry. You can think it's unfair. You can feel like we're stealing something from you, but it's still only going in one direction. You will respect us. You know what I see when I see that? <laughs> I see this, this image. Yes, mommy, what? That, my friends, is the Disney villainess. That is the narcissistic mother, although he's a man. That's what he's aping. That is, that's cluster B. I think that's cluster B. That's my mother screaming at me in the dining room and telling me, I don't know who you think you are, but from now on, you're going to respect me and you are going to humble yourself before me she would say as she ordered me to kneel. That's what Jeffrey Marsh wants. He wants you kneeling. You will respect us. Or else. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but it's also, it's just, it, it, it's just, it's, it is disturbing to me how many people see this and they think it's a righteous expression of owning yourself and taking your place in the world when you've been oppressed everywhere. It's not. It's narcissistic devouring. And I want to tie I want to tie something up I, for you before we leave here. I was tickled to find that I'm not the only person who made the connection between the Disney villainess look that became very popular in the 20th century animated Disney films and Joan Crawford's face. Um, Let's put this image up on here. This is from a social media account called MGM Musicals. Joan Crawford was the inspiration for Disney's evil queen in Snow White. Walt Disney suggested in 1934 that the papier-mâché masks by Art Deco illustrator Vladislav Theodore Bende be used as an inspiration for the queen's face. Her Hollywood mask of a face may also draw inspiration from Joan Crawford, particularly in the lips and the eyes. And if you take a look at pictures of Joan Crawford from the 30s, when she was still at the height of her beauty and had not quite become an over-the-top parody of herself, you can very clearly see it. The pout, the lips, the arched eyebrows. I mean, it's common to everybody, but I just found it interesting and gratifying um, that other people saw it too, because... The look is not just a look. The aesthetic is not unconnected to psychology with people like this. This appeals to narcissists. It's not just the way the makeup is applied, it's the way the face is held. You know, Faye Dunaway, who has absolutely zero sense of humor about her portrayal of Joan Crawford, she's very upset, she's been upset about it for 40 damn years. Um, she's bitter, and I understand it. I understand it to a degree because I think that she and the movie were unfairly panned. I think that her performance was actually very good, very Joan Crawford, and probably deserved an Oscar. 
and she was called a kabuki theater player for it. And I think that was unfair. And I think it was because people will not believe that a mother can act this way. But, but some can. But Faye Dunaway said that she really nailed the part. She had done the makeup several times and she tested it out with people. And it just wasn't quite working until she figured out what did it. What made her Joan Crawford? She said it was the way she held the muscles in her face. I don't know if I can do it very well, but it's a... You suck the cheeks in. You tighten the cheekbone muscles. You arch the eyebrows. You set the mouth really hard. This all comes through. The psychology and the aesthetic are connected. Anyway, welcome back to Disaffected. Happy 2022. I'll see you next week. For more conversation on the dark and disordered psychology that shapes today's cultural and political left, subscribe to our weekly audio podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and virtually anywhere else you get your podcasts. Let's learn to recognize these dynamics and call them what they are. Subscribe to Disaffected to learn how to break the spell.